Cleveland may field a pretty good baseball team after all. And this concludes the most ambitious crossover in Godcast history. You're listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zuppi. Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. See, Zach, I never want to hear that it's impossible to talk about two things on the same show. We just did it in the first five seconds of the intro. And really, I only mentioned that so we can cross that off our Google SEO should we get that in the headline somewhere? <laughs> Who would you rather sign to a long-term extension, Cade York or Shane Bieber? <laughs> Have you ever seen Shane Bieber single-handedly win a game? He needs help. He needs defense. Yes. He needs his catcher. He needs all of it. No. 2020, if you would like, did that a bunch. If you would like to share some of the reactions of your colleagues in the press, but no, let's not do that. Let's not get anybody in trouble. Let's, <laughs> let's just be nice here. Play nice. It's the free episode. Everyone's joining us. And it's been a couple of weeks since we've done a free one. Although I think people would enjoy if we started throwing people under the bus. We're not going to do that. We're above that here at the Selbius Godcast. So let me say, I don't know if anyone cares about this, but we, we mentioned it from time to time. Like, Sports fans are often caught in their own bubble where you, you're you so far removed from like the outside objective perspective of your team, your situation that like there's no hope, right? So I really like the Vikings this year. I think they have a ton of star power on offense and they finally have an offensive minded coach who maybe can get the most out of that talent. And I think their defense is pretty good too. So I'm like all in on them, all about them. And, you know, spending the weekend in Minnesota, they're not. (laughs) And I felt like I was trying to talk sense into Vikings fans and Minnesota media and Sam Hentges, who's from Minneapolis, right? grew up a Vikings fan. And he's like, yeah, like... Maybe they'll be all right this year. And I'm like, dude, I think they're going to win the division. I like, I don't think making the Super Bowl is an outrageous prediction. And he's like, really? Like, and then, and then, first of all, he comes in the game on Sunday and two seconds later, Justin Jefferson catches a touchdown. And then after the game, <laughs> they're up like, I'm trying to, maybe like 17 nothing. Um, it was closing in on halftime. And I'm like, what did I tell you? And it's just, it's so funny how I think a lot of times fans feel hopeless or they're just, you, you can be too close to something and maybe, and who knows, maybe the Vikings will go five and 12. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time I've predicted a team to exceed expectations and they fell on their face. Hello, White Sox. But I think... Sometimes you get so you're so close to it that you can't. What is it? You can't see the forest through the trees or whatever. Is that is that an analogy fit here? That's perfect. Yes. And it's 
It's interesting. I, and I think it fits for the Guardians, too, because a lot of times I think people forget. I think like the other fans of the other central teams. And it's a little different this year because everyone says, oh, it's a disgusting brand of baseball and they're lucky and et cetera, et cetera. But they're also like, God, you guys are annoying. Your your team has amazing pitching year after year. And I just think it's easy for fans to sort of get trapped in your bubble and sure, not have a good, well-rounded perspective. I mean, if we just want to keep traveling into the cliche territory and keep it on things that are of the woods and nature variety, the grass is always greener. Hmm. You always look at what other teams are doing, what is happening in other situations. You think, oh, why can't the team that I follow do that? But then if you were following that team, you would look fondly at other people, too. You, you tend to see more of your own faults than anyone else's. But the Guardians may have sent Twins fans into football season a little bit early here. Because the Twins are now a game below 500. They're no longer a 500 team. They're a game below 500 after getting handed a three-game sweep by the Cleveland Guardians. And for, for a little bit this weekend, it was like, yeah, okay, they're taking care of business against the Twins, but the White Sox aren't playing nice. The Oakland Athletics aren't helping here. Well, they ended up helping in the finale on Sunday in their series. So the Guardians lead in the, the division has grown now to two and a half games over the White Sox. And the Minnesota Twins have now faded to four and a half back in the division. Are you ready to declare the Minnesota Twins dead? Are they done, sir? I think everybody in that state would say yes. <laughs> so on the way out of the press box on Sunday, I heard a couple Minnesota reporters talking about how they were planning to write the season obituary Sunday night for the team. So... I think they feel like they're done. I, look, here's here's the thing. Like no one is talking about this. That Cleveland is a two and a half game lead over Chicago and a four and a half game lead over Minnesota, right? But that doesn't even do it justice. Look at the loss column, and look at how many games each team has played, because the White Sox have played. Two more games than Cleveland. Guardians have 23 games left. White Sox have 21. And the Guardians have a four-game advantage in the loss column, right? So that means the White Sox have 21 games to make up the four losses. And the Twins are five back in the loss column. And then, keep in mind, there's no game 163 this year. If teams are tied and there's no wild card scenario in play, which I think will be the case, it's whoever was better head to head. You win the division. Congratulations. You're hosting a series in October. So I think they need one uh, one win against the Twins in that five game series this weekend to win the tiebreaker against the Twins. And they have four games left with Chicago. And I think they need... Probably should have done this homework before the podcast, but this is how we roll. Um, I mean, they, I, they, they've, they're they they've closing in on the tiebreaker against Chicago. So, it's... It, it would... If they have the tiebreaker against both, you're talking... I mean, add an extra game to the lead because a tie and they're good. So, they are... Everything is set up 
for the Guardians. I mean, they could not ask to be in a better position. They earned it with how they played over the weekend where they looked like, I mean, that was like 2017 Indians against the tw- the Twins. That that They looked like the better team. I know things got a little nerve-wracking in the late innings Friday and Saturday, but like... A little? Yeah, but, <laughs> but they just flat out looked like the better team, and the Twins looked like a team that was just ready to die. I don't know that I would be ready to, to say that they are completely dead, but life support might be uh, an accurate way to... To assess the situation there for Minnesota, don't they need to go like five and zero? We're gonna in Cleveland that's, next weekend. That's what I'm saying. Like it, it would need to be nightmare worst case scenario. So, I, I like to avoid the, the thought of this is a must win game way before it's ever a must win game, because my my thought is always, if you say it's a must win game, and then they lose the game, and then what? <laughs> like, are we saying like it's done? I understand the thought that it's a very important game. It is a a a outcome shifting you know uh, situation. But I like to avoid saying things are must win long before they actually are must win. But in the Twins' case, it's going to take them basically playing perfect against Cleveland in every matchup, and also they're going to need some help by the teams that play the White Sox. But the thing that goes against the Twins in this situation, and we'll, we'll get past this in a minute, on one hand, they have to pray that the White Sox beat Cleveland, but Chicago is also in front of Cleveland because <laughs> they also play each other. It's not a perfect situation. It's not like just chasing down one team and you think, okay, if they lose their games and we win, we'll be okay. Well, the team that they're also playing is a team that's ahead of you in the standing. So it's a difficult situation for them. And to sort of put a bow on this, as of today, Cleveland, the Guardians at Fangraphs have a 67.9% chance to make the playoffs, and 67.3% of that chance is within the division, because I think it's going to be difficult for anybody in the Central to take a wild card spot. The White Sox are now at 25.8% chance to win the division, 26.9% chance to make the playoffs. And the Twins have dropped all the way down to 7% chance to win the division, and I think that's probably about accurate. 7% is about where I'd put that for them. It just it complicates it and clouds it when you you know that there are still matchups between these these teams ahead. Sure. And that's the only thing that that makes it that gives them that 7% chance is because there still is an opportunity to go play the team that you're directly chasing. Cleveland is 9 and 6 against Chicago with four games left, so they only need one to win the tiebreaker. They're 9 and 5 against Minnesota despite a negative 10 run differential. So they only need one win against the Twins in that five-game set this weekend to win the tiebreaker. So they're in really good shape. And that's not to say it's going to be easy. They, they, They could run into a losing streak at some point. And there are some major questions with the pitching over the next two weeks. But they also have those six games at the end of the season against Kansas City. That's just <laughs> like a great. It's like a safety net. Yeah, it's like they're climbing a mountain here to win the division title, but there's a big 
blanket and mattress at the bottom just in case they fall off. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll, it's also set up if you somehow miss that blanket on the way down. Even though it was set up for you, you would say, my God, there was, it was right there. You was set up perfectly. And then that becomes that, that 2005 end of the season where you look back, oh, the devil, you, you couldn't take care of business against the devil rays. I don't want to have that sort of defeatist attitude. Seth McClung beat them <laughs> in one of those games. I'll never forget that name. Uh, well, people didn't click on this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, where if you catch this podcast to hear that sort of cynical outlook, Cleveland had a really good road trip. And in fact, the only game they lost is one where Classe melts down in a very uncharacteristic fashion. So very close to just taking every game on this road trip. Let's revisit this this series here a little bit. And let's go back to Friday where his, our, our social media intern joked, if there's one way to grip a broom, make sure you got a firm hold on that. You want to make sure you use some sweat and rosin. Make sure that broom doesn't go slipping out of your hands as you're attempting that sweep. Wait, we even had blood. <laughs> yeah, I, I hired him. You didn't know about that? Are they paid? It's an intern. What do you think? I would think we would treat our employees very well. We'd give them a pat on the back and a good job and a thumbs up. Um, and no, it's not my six-year-old son doing those tweets. We're shaping up to be a one where I thought maybe we're going to get the benches clearing by the end of Sunday. <laughs> and maybe the two managers fighting with the look that Tito gave Rocco Baldelli as he is out pleading with the umpire to go look at James Karinchek's hair and go check him for, as you said on Twitter, lice. <laughs> what were you what were you thinking and what was the reaction of everyone with, within the press box as you're seeing the home plate umpire asking Karinchek what conditioner he uses to make sure his hair stays so soft? So credit to our colleague and good friend Dan Hayes, who covers the twins. He predicted it. It was like the sixth inning, maybe. And he asked me if I thought Karinchek would get in the game if it remained. I, I want to say it was maybe 7-4 at the time. Um, or maybe it was, maybe that's when it was 7-2 and he was saying, he was asking what sort of scenario Karinchek would pitch in. And I said, if, you know, if it's a close game, he's probably got the eighth. And he said, I bet you Rocco Baldelli will make the umps check him. And lo and behold, that's what happened. I was waiting for that day to come because even if you think everybody is back to having some sort of solution to getting a better grip, even if like he's not the only pitcher I've seen running his hands through his hair regularly, but he's kind of like linked to the whole sticky stuff situation. Right. I mean, there was the video of him or his glove or whatever from last year when they were playing Chicago. His numbers last season spoke for themselves in this, the first and second half splits. So and he's just like a nut out there. I mean, he's never standing still. He's never he's constantly fidgeting. He's constantly talking to himself. He's constantly in motion. And 
the way he celebrates after a scoreless inning. I mean, he's just like he he kind of brings it upon himself in a way. But I I said out loud in the press box, I'm like, I watched I watched a pitcher launch a baseball to the moon during a moment of frustration in Kansas City a few years ago. I watched a reliever warming up overthrow a, a, a warm-up toss onto the field in the middle of, a, what was it, David Murphy? Yeah. Doubling. He was, he was, well, he was on his way to third. Okay. The Jumbo Diaz fiasco, where you had two baseballs on the field at once. You know, I've seen some really wild shit. I've never seen an umpire run his fingers through a pitcher's hair. And that is not something I will soon forget. <laughs> I mean, if you're Karen Check, don't you, just to really mess with the situation, don't you have to moan a little bit? You know, I'll tell you the one situation or scenario that didn't play out, though, to your point, and Dan Hayes predicted it. It was the thing that did not happen was the twins in Rocco Baldelli sitting in the dugout in that moment going, what's this? This is the first time we've noticed this. Hmm. What's happening? What's he doing with his hair? What happened, if I had to guess, is that the twins had a meeting before the series started, and Karen Check's name came up, and they strategically thought, this is a guy that goes to his hair, 99% chance that it's sweat and rosin. They knew that. There's no chance that they didn't know that because they're not stupid, and probably some of their pitchers do it, whether it's going to their hair, going to their forearm. Baseball has deemed that that's legal, so whether or not you like it, baseball has said that that's legal, so whether or not he wants to be cautious about it or he wants to be flaunting it in front of everybody doesn't matter because baseball has decided this is legal. They had a meeting. If I had to guess, they said, when can we use this to mess with this dude on the mound? When do we want to deploy this as a weapon? I think what the Guardian said about it happening in the middle of an at-bat, it makes me side more with their thought process. Because, I, I, okay, whether you want to go check a pitcher or not, but when you do it in the middle of an at-bat, then it's pretty yeah. obvious what you're doing here in this situation. And it's not like it comes with, with Rocco Baldelli. Doesn't that dude, he looks like he would be exhausting to cover. Because that dude, when is that dude not grinding mm-hmm. on some, just constantly looks like he's got that's got what, what's the saying that your your pal often goes the ass mark yeah. Carrig will say got guys, the guys got guys got the ass rocco baldelli dude do you take a, a breath do you calm <laughs> down at all do you enjoy anything in life because i'm not sure that that dude does so yeah my, my thought is that was a strategic play there's no doubt about it they knew exactly what was happening they didn't expect them to find anything, but they absolutely wanted to use that to their advantage. They pulled the trigger, I think it was after the fifth pitch of an at-bat. It was a 2-2 count to your best hitter or second best hitter with your <clears throat> best hitter or second best hitter on deck. You didn't do it at the start of the inning. You didn't do it after the first batter when you noticed, oh, hey, this is what he does. You didn't do it the last time you faced him. I mean, I, I, yeah. I give the Guardians credit 
I did notice the cameras picked up Tito kind of nodding and looking over at the twins dugout as if to say, and pardon my French. Uh, hey guys, future TJ here. If you're listening with your kids in your car right now, if you are in a work environment, I would recommend you turn down your volume or perhaps utilize the earmuffs method because our pal Zach is about to let loose. That's all. Hope you're enjoying this episode. Okay, bye. All right, motherfuckers. That's how you're going to play this? Um, Whoa! My words, not his. Maybe his internal monologue. He wouldn't tip his hand at that, but... I was thinking more like, okay, guys, this is the way you want to play this. But sure, if you want to offend yeah, all the children I, listening in the cars with their parents right now, absolutely <laughs> go for it. How old is our intern? Can <laughs> Are they old enough to hear a language like that? But yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's the kind of thing where like this team, and this has sort of been their, this is kind of who they are, where it's like, They don't give a shit. Like they 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 roll with the punches and then like they look up at the end of the series and it's like we got the last laugh. I don't know. It's very impressive the way they're able to keep their composure sure and keep at it given their youth. Well, how perfect was it that it the guy that closes out the series is James Karinchek. It was interesting cuz a couple of guys reach Strike zone in that final inning was a little curious at times. But Karen Cech is certainly capable of walking everybody, but still strikes three guys out, ends it with a strikeout. as a perfect bookend to this series. And the, the Twins in, in this particular set of three games were focused on you know, uh, just what, what a guy's using to get an advantage over them, knowing more than likely that it was completely legal. Meanwhile, the the Guardians just went out and took early leads in pretty much every situation. And yeah, they had to hold on by the seat of their pants in two of those games, and the third one was still interesting toward the end. They ended up sweeping the series. So, yeah, you're right. Cleveland gets the last laugh in this situation. Was it uh, Cal Quantrill that said there needs to be something that deters someone from just utilizing this whenever they, they feel like it? What, was, what were his words after the game? Yeah, he just said that there should be some sort of punishment or penalty. You know, if you're going to play that card, if you're wrong, there needs to be consequence. You had an idea. I think they should shave it. The, whoever challenged it, they should shave their eyebrows right there on the field. Yeah. Be like a yeah. Vince McMahon hair match moment against Donald Trump where they just have to get it. After the, the thing is over, they got to get the, the barber chair out and they just shave his head. We can't do that to Rocco because he can't shave his head. So next best thing, eyebrows. Got to go, dude. Got to go. <laughs> Makes you think long and hard next time about doing this. I believe Edge and Kurt Angle did that first. Um, sure. Now, it, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, the umpire said, like, that's he's never had to be in that situation before so I, I don't I I don't think I've seen that anywhere throughout the league the pitcher getting his hair checked um but it does bring up an interesting point I mean what if you know couldn't Rocco have 
done the exact same thing in the ninth inning with guys on base on Sunday? Like, there's no rule that says just because we checked yeah. him Friday doesn't mean we can't check him Sunday. Yeah, what's to stop anyone from doing it every time? Because mm-hmm. your thought is, well, you checked him last time, so now he knows he's not going to get checked. Well, aren't they still checking everybody after every inning that they throw? is like a reliever. You got to get checked afterwards. Every reliever comes off the mound. They get their hand checked. The starters aren't doing it every inning, but the relievers absolutely are. And aren't this, the the closers, the guys that are pitching the ninth, aren't mm-hmm. they checked before the inning anyway? Before, but but those checks are like they look that the pitcher will place his hand, um, palm up, in the umpire's hands, and like they look at it and they say okay. But when the umpire went out there Friday night, Karen checks like take starting to take off his belt. Like this is turning into a. AL Central after dark situation here. <laughs> I mean, he's taking off his hat. He's like unbuttoning his jersey, showing his hands, whatever, whatever you want to check. So, but it, it's, I mean, he said he's like, he wasn't shocked. He figured it was coming. Oh, sure. At some point. So it, it is interesting though. I mean, cause there's no, you know, when you bring gamesmanship into it, I mean, why not just make the umpires check every pitcher, every inning? (laughs) I just wanted to go full petty in that situation because then Correa comes up later in the inning, hits a two-run home run. If Tito would have said, hey, let's go check Correa's bat right now. Go confiscate Hmm. that bat. We want that bat. We want to check it. You just could have built a statue to Tito Francona right there and then (laughs) because that would have been the level of petty that I aspire to have every day in my life. It's just the most toxic thing that you could do in your life. By God, that's (laughs) Jason Grimsley's music. (laughs) Oh, that would have been so perfect. And then imagine you find out, oh, my God, it's court. This guy's always been a cheater. (laughs) It would have been it would have just been fun to just take that to a full new level of sports entertainment and let's make this full-on wrestling pro wrestling at its best that's what i would have been there for yeah i think i'll be curious to see if there's any more examples of this before the end of the season if like if this becomes an actual topic that needs to be broached during the off season um because this is the first example i can think of and it was just the timing of it was interesting and of course he gives up a home run to correa so you know, that I I guess you could say it worked for Rocco, right? I think they got what they wanted out of it was mm-hmm. Karen Check giving up runs. We could argue whether it was the right time to do it, but us operating in hindsight, we'd say no, because they didn't end up winning the game. But in the moment, you're just trying to create something. And maybe you're thinking about the next time this dude comes in the game against us, he's going to still be thinking about it. And so you just think it screws them up for the entire series. And the way that the bullpen, outside of just the Karen check thing, but the entire bullpen itself with the way that they were melting down in some of these games, it did have an impact on Sunday. Brian Shaw not being able to close out a 6 nothing lead on Sunday led to uh, Classe coming in in the second game of the series, and that led to Karen check needing to come in in the finale to close it out. Can I pat myself on the back for something? Of course I can. What are you going to stop me? I'll just mute you if I don't want you to interject. Do you remember, it was probably somewhere around the All-Star break, maybe a little bit before, 
where we were talking about Bieber, and let's revisit this because the dude continues to pitch extremely well here recently, and we had a conversation in our, our recent Patreon show whether or not he is having one of the more underrated, if not the most underrated pitching season in Cleveland Guardians history, just in, in terms of how we've evaluated it and what the results actually are. But I said, I had a feeling, I couldn't quite pinpoint why, but do you remember I said, it feels like he's on the verge of one of those Corey Kluber type rips off two months of spectacular pitching and you look up and you go, holy shit, this dude has been pitching extremely well. That he was just something about him. I just, I just had a feeling. I can't, I can't describe it other than that. Well, did you know in his last nine starts, and I'm just going to cherry pick here because I'm trying to prove a point. If we go after the, the sixth run outing he had against the White Sox. So July 29th to yesterday, his last nine starts in 61 and two-thirds innings, he has yielded a 1.75 ERA, a 2.41 FIP. I would say that's pretty darn close to the sort of run that we said, or I said, <laughs> hold on, me, that I said he was, he was capable of. Doesn't this sort of remind you the way that Kluber in the middle middle of a season would just get locked in and then at the end of the year his numbers are sparkling because he's gone to a new level over like a two-month period yeah that's a good comparison i did know those numbers because i wrote about it last night uh but he says he's feeling more like himself carl willis says he looks like he's trusting his uh the, the mechanics more and remember he's been working through those mechanics for most of the season after developing some bad habits last year when he was nursing the injury. So, yeah, he's uh, he's peaking at the right time. And I wrote last week, you know, the key to winning this division, they need Bieber and McKenzie and Quantrill to chew up innings because they're going to need that bullpen a lot. They only have one off day left. They've got at least one double header left. And they're facing some tough teams, you know, with with the in-division foes. So it's important. And and not having Plesak and Savali right now, you know, you can only get so much out of Pilkington and Morris and whoever else they use. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's important. I think this is sort of as Bieber was mapping out his season and the team was strategizing with the shortened spring training how to go about things. This is sort of... This was Bieber's master plan. This was his grand hope. And I think, I mean, he's admitted like he didn't know it was going to play out this way. And I think when his velocity was down significantly early and he looked fine, but not spectacular. I mean, he said like there were, it's been frustrating at times, but he's been effective throughout. And he's been really effective the last nine starts, as you mentioned. Do you feel like you've gotten to the bottom at all, to a point you raised on the, the Patreon show, just about his personality this year? We had an interesting chat over the weekend. Um, I still don't really know. I. It's also possible I'm reading too much into things. You know, he's admitted, like, it's different. 
Um, and there was a, something he hinted at that sort of opened my eyes. And we we touched on this. We speculated last week. But I think he has been such... I mean, he said like... I said to him at one point, I'm like, you know, you're having this like really under the radar good season. His numbers, like the ERA is better than it was last year. is better than it was in 19 when he was fourth in the Cy Young voting. And the FIP is really good too. So it's not like... He's just had good sequencing or whatever, but he, his look at his career, right? So first year he comes up in 2018 and he's learning from like four aces, Clevenger and Carrasco and Bauer and Kluber. And then 2019, they have tons of injuries and he emerges as like the ace of the staff. He's the all-star game MVP. This is a guy who had... Like his parents had like blue collar jobs and they worked hard and, you know, he was not some hot shot high school baseball player who signed for $5 million and was a top prospect. He was a walk on in college who only had a spot because Tyler Malley decided to forego college and sign with the Reds. Um, <clears throat> he was never a prospect that people expected much out of. He never threw hard. So he's always sort of kind of flown under the radar, right? And then he gets to the majors and his first full season, he's all-star game MVP and he's fourth in the Cy Young voting and Justin Bieber is wearing his jersey and the next year he's the most dominant pitcher in the world and he's a unanimous Cy Young winner. So he hasn't been able to fly under the radar and I think this year, given how much work he's had to do to improve throughout the season and to get his delivery where he wants it and to mentally get over the hurdle of, man, what if I hurt my shoulder again and mess up my whole career and all the earnings I might get? Like, there's a lot there. So it has been a bit of a conscious decision to not be the center of attention. And while all the younger teammates are in the clubhouse playing cards every day and living the high life and having so much fun. He's sort of just like behind the scenes, getting his work done, doing his outfield sprints, watching video, lifting. So I think he's just more focused. And you mentioned, you brought up the Kluber link. It's, it's kind of reminiscent of that. He's not like robotic and whispering all the time. But, like, he's a little more subdued, and I think he's just fixated on the fact that for the first time in his career, he's had to, like, change his identity as a pitcher. Yeah. Like, on the fly. And it's been challenging. And so he's had to put in maybe more effort to do that. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. And as we've talked this through, we we talked about it on the show, we exchanged text messages about it. <laughs> I joked a little bit about He's a Gemini, dude. He's born on May 31st. He's just a chameleon. Um, but I think there's something to that because maybe deep below the surface, he does like flying under the radar a little bit. He does being a little bit like Kluber, just showing up, doing his work. But I also think he just excels more at being able to be personable. So I think he can fool our, maybe fool us a little bit into thinking, oh, no, he's just this, he's Mr. Personality. I think he's just really good at he's good at having a conversation with somebody. He's he's going to be engaging when you speak to him. 
as opposed to when you talk to Kluber, it was just, you know, very, hey, let's talk about the thing that we're talking about and then we're going to be done. And it's very transactional. I think he's just better at at maybe showcasing some personality at times, but maybe that's not truly who he thinks he is or who he, he is actually. He just demonstrates more people, person skills than maybe we had seen with Kluber, despite them maybe having a lot of similarities as in terms of how they want to go about their work. I, I truly think the biggest thing, though, is he has just had to put so much time and energy into reinventing himself. When, you're, when you don't feel like you are who you want to be in that moment, I just feel like it is probably so tough to just come in and joke with everybody and just be in a great mood. And you also mentioned that the clubhouse has changed so much. He has had to grow up so fast. He was the young guy, and then because of injuries and because the, the team shifted the way that everyone looks at him like he's this veteran, despite the fact that he's in line in age with many of the pit, the pitchers that are on the pitching staff. And we think of him as the veteran pitcher, despite the fact that at most he's slightly older than some of the other peers in that clubhouse. But we look at them as these wide-eyed rookies and we expect him to be great at all times. So expectations have changed over the years because we have seen him reach greatness and be among the best pitchers on the planet. He may never get back to that. He might not be a top three pitcher in baseball, but top 10, yes. Is he a, an ace? Does appear so. And the only questions were really about health and if the, you know, he could, he could be successful with the sort of velocity that he had now. I think he's answered that question. Yeah, this dude can be really damn good, even if he's only throwing 92. And I'm really interested to see what he decides to tackle in the offseason, knowing where he is now, yes. what worked yeah. this season. Absolutely. You know, the pitch usage throughout his career has been fascinating. His rookie season, he threw fastballs 57% of the time. And I think part of that, too, was, ooh, I throw 93, 94 now. This is kind of cool. And part of that also was Clevenger and Bauer telling him, hey, Stop throwing 88, throw 93. <laughs> um, but, you know, this year it's the slider that he's throwing a ton. And he's been more selective with his curveball, even though his curveball is still really, really effective. So knowing you have that baseline of like, okay, this is what my mechanics are like now. This is what, this is the pitch mix that allows me to be successful with these mechanics. What can I add? What can I tweak? How can I get better over the offseason? That's going to be really interesting for him. Yeah, and, and it's not a uh, an offseason where he's chasing health at all. He is, it's not, it's not even, I know he gets back at the end of last year and they, they say that's a big hurdle, and I get it, but it doesn't mean that he went and had a normal offseason the way that he would have preferred. I, I kind of think of the same thing with Josh Naylor. I think this is going to be a fascinating offseason for Josh Naylor. He's had a really pretty good year. Not great. He's not one of the best hitters in the league, but he's a solid player that is going to be, looks like to be in the middle of your lineup for the next several years. And we're not talking about who's going to be at first base for the next several years. Josh Naylor looks like that guy. But I, I think maybe he takes another step forward because he's not going to have to spend all of his offseason thinking about being healthy and getting on the field. He can actually just put all of his effort into maybe something he wants to do uh, as far as adjustment at the plate. Or he can focus on strengthening different parts of his body that he just could not attack this offseason. I think it's going to be a similar thing for Bieber. Uh, that he'll just be able to have a normal offseason and maybe 
maybe then he can get back to velocity training the way that maybe he didn't feel like he could coming into this season. And he'll come back and his fastball will be, you know, he'll added another tick back to it. And he'll just be another year removed and another year closer to where he was at, you know, in that 2020 season. So it'll be fascinating. I, I cannot wait to see what happens with him. Uh, but for a while, it was a little bit perplexing. Uh, and as far as guys that have confused me a little bit, let's talk about Jose Ramirez. Uh, because maybe he's, he, this is a similar thing with him. Overall, the numbers look spectacular. If you look at, at Fangraph's war, it would suggest that he's right there as far as MVP finalist category. No, no one's going to top judge at this point. I don't even think Otani has a great case for that. But as far as MVP finalist, Jose Ramirez is going to be in the conversation. But if you have paid any attention to him of late, you would say he has not been a great hitter. But he's also so talented that despite the fact that he hasn't been great, he's still been good. He's been solid. Since the All-Star break, he's been 10% above league average, and we're thinking of, of that as his baseline of, of being horrible, that he's not carrying the team right now. What have you seen with Ramirez? I do think the thumb or hand or wrist or whatever is still bugging him a little bit. I don't think he'll ever let us on enough to have a firm grasp of what that means. And this is kind of the... So what makes it tricky in evaluating him. It's like, if you just say, hey, I'm battling this, I've been battling it all season, it really hurts, then I think it would be easier for people to sort of just judge his season and maybe be more accepting of the results because we hold him to such a high standard. He's earned that. And he looked for about the first two months of the season like it was going to be Ramirez versus Judge in this titanic battle for AL MVP. So the fact that he's been solid, well above average since seems very disappointing and you want to find an explanation for it. But like Bieber, and this is me speculating here, like Bieber, I think you develop bad habits. I think the gift and the curse of the season schedule where you play every single day for six months is that if you're going cold, you can get hot at any minute. If you have a bad game, you can flush it so quickly because you have another game the next day. But the curse is that if you develop some bad habits because of something, you start overcompensating. And it's really, really difficult to pull yourself out of that and reset. You know, if you get the all-star break, maybe maybe that's enough time to, to do something like that if it's small. Or if you have an injured list stint, that can help. But really, you're just surviving day to day. And then you get to the offseason, and that's when you can really pull back and start from scratch. But if you've developed some bad habits, and with Ramirez, it looks like he has, because he's been chasing a lot more, and he hasn't been as patient, and he's not trying as many walks, at least unintentional ones. You know, it's it's tough to just... You can identify things, but it's really difficult to snap out of those bad habits while you're playing day after day after day after day. 
And it's it's a good thing too because every day provides you with another chance to perhaps get away from those bad habits too. You don't want to spend you know a week on the bench not working on things because maybe that's not helping you. I think it's a a delicate balance even for a manager to decide when does this guy just need a a day to perhaps flush everything. But you also don't want to get in the way of him working his way out of it too. Maybe he has felt something with the, not quite an injury, but something that's nagging. At the same time, I don't think that explains everything. I, I like you, have, you know, I even made the joke on the intentional walk. It's surprising he didn't try to still swing because it felt like he's been swinging out <laughs> of his shoes at stuff, trying to make things happen. The numbers would say that that's been the case a little bit, but it's not drastic. It's not like you're looking at the chart and you're seeing his O-swing percentage, the pitches that he's chasing outside the zone, and it's skyrocketed. In fact, earlier in the season, I think it maybe had been in May or June, he actually was doing that a lot more than he is now. It's slightly elevated right now, but not again, not drastic. He is not taking the walks, so that in itself is a little bit curious because it's it's not, as I said, it's not as if you're seeing a a, a 15% percentage point jump here in the number of pitches he's swinging at outside the zone. But the swings and misses have gone up. And I, I don't know if I have anything that I can help explain a, what, a way why that is taking place. But he's just swinging and missing more uh, in the zone, outside the zone. I had wondered, when he is going so good, he has got to be someone that pulls his fly balls. He is never going to be on the top of any ex-WOBA leaderboard but you always expect him to outperform what the expected numbers would say because he makes the most of his contact. He is capable of hitting a home run on a ball that he didn't actually barrel. He pulls the ball in the air. And if you do that, those are the guys, like Andre Semenez, the season he has had, it's because he has optimized the fly balls that he hits and he pulls them in the air. For him, if he hits them to the opposite field, that's not going to go over the fence. And it's probably not even going to be a double. So he has to pull them in the air. Jose has actually been better here of late of, at pulling the ball in the air. So it's not a case of uh, he's been out of sorts with his fly ball distribution. He's actually pulling the ball in the air. In fact, that might be the only thing that's been the saving grace in that it's kept his numbers afloat. He occasionally will have a good game or will hit a home run and keeps the numbers presentable, uh, if not better. But he, even in the last month, he's avoided some of the, the infield fly pop-ups, which are basically like strikeouts because those get confer- converted into out, outs uh, pretty regularly. So looking at the batted ball quality, I would have to dig even deeper to see if there's something else there at play. But I'm just looking at the strikeouts and the swings and misses and wondering that that's where a lot of my, my focus goes. Just why, is, why isn't he not taking the walks and why is he swinging and missing more? It's curious. I don't have an answer for it, but that's that's the only thing I found. It's been one of the great mysteries of the season, and keep waiting for him to. You know he's he's been so close in the MVP race so many times. I keep waiting for him to have that one signature season, the one where you're gonna be like, hey, remember, remember Jose Ramirez's 2024? Got his numbers. Just jump off the page. Still waiting for that. That's not to take anything away from him as a player because he's consistently year in and year out one of the league's top hitters. But curious to uh, see if maybe that'll 
Maybe he'll be helped at all by lack of defensive shifting. Hmm. Interesting. We do have some news on that front, don't we? But we did get some some news on shifts, and that was seemingly inevitable. Pitch clocks, which I like. I think it's going to speed things up. Maybe even put more balls in play if guys aren't able to take 25, pitches, 25 seconds between each, each pitch and load up and try to maximize your velocity on every throw. Well, my first thought with the rule changes was that Karinchek's not going to have time to go to his hair and then the rosin bag <laughs> and then throw a pitch. So On the contrary, maybe... I can't wait to see that at turbo speed. <laughs> wait, if this isn't turbo speed, then what is his current setting? That's my setting? point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see just what the game looks like in general because there have been a lot of changes in a short period of time. And... You know, our pitchers going to be able to get to their max velocity every time if they don't have as much time to collect themselves and just gear up to make another pitch. Uh, and then, you know, defenses, you're still obviously going to have, you're still going to move guys as much as you can. I think it'll make second athletic second baseman more valuable. And maybe even an athletic first baseman more valuable to a lesser extent. Um, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see. Can can you do? Can you still have four? I guess you can. Can you put four people in the outfield? Like, can you no. move one of your infielders to the outfield? No. no so you can move an you can move an outfielder to the infield but you cannot do the opposite. Well, where would the outfielder play in the infield? I assume anywhere you want them to that's legal. I don't know. There, You know, T Terry Francona always says he doesn't love this because it was an organic... You know, it's not like... It's not like there was a loophole taken advantage of here. This has just been an organic, strategic thing across baseball that every team does. And he doesn't like the league prohibiting that And all when there are ways to counteract it. And also that with anything, there are unintended consequences. I don't really know what those will be yet, but there will be some. And I'm curious, like, is someone going to hit 380 next year? You know, I'm, I've been trying to think about the types of hitters who will benefit most from this. We've talked about it, but left-handed hitters, yeah, yeah. But also, just like, what about? I mean, this team is full of contact hitters who put the ball in play and seem to find holes in the defense, even with shifts. So, what happens when there aren't shifts? I don't think it's going to drastically change offense. Uh, it will probably add. God, I don't I don't even know. It's not going to add that many hits. It's not going to... I don't think any of these rules are going to drastically change the game where it's not even going to be a, a sport that you recognize anymore. If anything, it just it makes it a little bit closer to the baseball that we grew up watching. That, that's, that's all. And I think it, it maybe makes it a more entertaining sport. And now, certainly shaving time off with the pitch clock. And it's not always just about length of game, but it's, you know, time between pitches it's how much action is taking place 
in the game that you're watching. I can watch a three and a half hour game and be completely glued in on every pitch if there's a lot of action and there's a lot of things taking place. But it's a different thing when it's walk, foul ball, it's it's and then there's 30 seconds between every pitch. That's terrible. No one wants to watch that. So I think just it makes the sport a little bit more watchable. It's not going to drastically change offense for any team. Certain hitters are going to be benefited a little bit by this. Uh, I think you're right that it's it perhaps puts a better, uh, more of an emphasis on your defense. Maybe it's second base. Perhaps it's shortstop too. If your shortstop cannot be position, you know, Ahmed Rosario does he lose a little bit of of defensive value because you can't position him exactly where you want. And uh, even looking at the numbers, he struggles going to his left. And maybe teams have, you know, maybe the Guardians have taken that into account with where you're positioning him. But the thing that does drive me absolutely crazy is the giant reaction to it as if baseball is the only sport on the planet that ever changes their rules. Why are they held to this standard? Every other sport makes giant rule changes all the freaking time. Football does it. Basketball does it. Baseball does it. It's like, oh, hold on. You can't. What are you doing here? What are you talking about? I saw someone say, you know, they don't put restrictions on what you can do in football and, and basketball. Yes, they freaking do. You can't line up wherever you want offensively. There are rules on how many guys have to be on the line of scrimmage. In basketball, can a big seven-footer just plant his fat ass in the middle of the paint? Hell no. It's called a three-second <laughs> violation. You can't play whatever defense you want. That's not how this works. There are restrictions on where guys can stand. So if baseball thinks this is better for their their watchability, and I, I, I think it, it will be, then okay. I just don't get why. It's a, it's a whole thing. So that concludes my TED Talk. Thanks for coming to it. I feel better. Got that out. We love TJ Unhinged. I had a random Cleveland player of the podcast for you, but I also have a screaming baby, a dog that won't stop barking. Uh, it was Greg LaRocca. Infielder from 2002, uh, 2003. Was it Greg LaRocca? Yeah. Nice. Nailed it. Oh, to be back from the road and <laughs> not have any quiet. Oh, for Zach Meisel, for myself, TJ Zuki, for you for being here. We'll see you later this week at patreon.com slash Godcast. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>